Too many of us become prisoners in our boxes, seemingly incapable of escaping, unable to even peek out of the top and see or seek what's on our desired horizon or perhaps embrace our truth. I think we all should work at getting out of the boxes for the sake of us, for each other, and the sake of our planet. Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive in today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide the seven habits of highly transformative leaders at chriscolbert.com. If you ever see me speak, you know that I'm a big, big believer in this guy named Abraham Maslow. He was an American psychologist, did a lot of this work back in the 1950s. And he spent much of his life trying to understand and codify why humans do what they do, why we don't do what we should do, and why we should do what we don't do. His greatest legacy is something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Need. It's a model or a framework that I use in much of my work. If you don't know it, let me try to explain it as simply as I can. So first, envision a pyramid, two-dimensional pyramid with five levels or stages. In Maslow's view, the first stage, the base level of the pyramid, is physiological. This is the need for food, water, shelter, that sort of very basic thing. The next stage is the need for safety, which in 21st century parlance, I think is really about control. The third level of need, love and belonging. The fourth level, self-esteem. And the fifth level, self-actualization, the realization of one's full potential. Maslow's theory was that all humans live bottom up, meaning that when we wake up every day, our first subconscious concern or need is physiological. Where will we find food? Where will we find water? Where will we find shelter? And then right after that, where will we find safety? And then right after that, where will we find love and belonging? Those first three levels of need guide much, if not most, of our behaviors, our actions, and our decisions. And fundamentally, they are survival needs. The last two levels of need, according to Maslow, self-esteem and self-actualization, are really thriving levels of need, not surviving levels of need. 
And sadly, many people never get to those levels, never self-actualize because they are stuck at the lower levels. They are stuck in what I'm thinking of as a metaphorical box or perhaps many metaphorical boxes. I've come to believe that our survival instinct causes to seek the comfort and safety of boxes. Boxes have walls, boxes have floors, and boxes have ceilings. And as a society, I think we've responded to that shared desire for more safety and more comfort by creating all kinds of boxes that imply safety and comfort and even imply progress, when in fact, perhaps they are little more than constraints on how we might actually live more meaningful, more fulfilling, and more integrated, fluid lives. Think about it. The entire education system, at least in America, K-12, higher ed, is basically a box or a collection of boxes. You enter it, you check the boxes of grades, of subjects, of credits, and you get the box of a diploma that you can then show to the world to prove that you are worthy for the next set of boxes. Every topic in education has become a box, including, sadly, the humanities. In days of yore, humanities were woven throughout all other subjects because all subjects are woven throughout humanity. And thanks to the hyperfixation on what someone once called utilitarian individualism, fueled in large part by technology and capitalism, we started pushing the teaching and contemplation of our humanness into a separate box, which some students explore, but most do not. Once you have that diploma, you get out of the box of education and you enter the box of a job, which often turns into the box of a career. And while you're doing that, many of us start trying to get into the box called marriage. The irony of the marriage box is that it often fails, in part because the two people find themselves in separate boxes inside their marriage box. The walls at some point become unscalable and impenetrable between them, in part because the walls around them are so constricting. Many people who climb into the marriage box quickly seek to check the box called having a child. And when they do, their tendency is to gauge the health or progress of the child by checking certain boxes. Are they fed? Check. Do they go to school? Check. Are they getting good grades? Check. Will they get into a good school? Maybe check. It seems as if the boxes we grew up checking are the same boxes we use to gauge the success of our children. Discrete boxes, discrete tasks, discrete outcomes. Check. And yet if we really think about it, box thinking, box seeking, box checking is the antithesis of how most of us want to live our lives or perhaps should live our lives. Because boxes by definition are limiting. They contain us, at times they suppress us, and even control us. By nature and format, boxes foster separation and a belief system that everything is discrete when in fact everything is connected. Mother Nature knows that better than anybody. The natural world is not a box or made up of boxes. It's a complex ecosystem with infinite connections and a required symbiosis for all living things to survive and evolve. Because we treat it the same way we live our lives, in boxes, we are slowly killing it. And perhaps we are slowly killing ourselves or at least killing the potential of our lives. Too many of us become prisoners in our boxes, seemingly incapable of escaping, unable to even peek out of the top and see or seek what's on our desired horizon or perhaps embrace our truth. I think we all should work at getting out of the boxes for the sake of us, for each other, and the sake of our planet. 
I'm not suggesting walking away from education or jobs or marriage or parenting. Rather, I'm proposing that we might want to remake the context and our approaches to them. We should first recognize the limitations of boxes and second, start looking for ways to take down some of the walls that comprise our boxes. In education, let's replace discrete subjects with interdisciplinary projects. In health, let's embrace finally mind, body, and spirit as the symbiotic truth of what health really means. In finance, let's redefine what it means to be rich. In our jobs, let's take down the walls in our roles, in our opportunities, in our career paths. The current push for more organizations to embrace purpose and the call for more opportunity of remote working as an option is about employees wanting to not work in a box and not simply check the box called work. In our relationships, let's find the courage to replace the walls between us with conduits, skylights, and roof decks. Let's embrace an open-endedness to how we listen, how we connect, how we share, how we compromise, and how we love. Sure, the walls and the floors and the ceilings of our boxes feel safe, but in actuality, they are chock full of risk and carry massive lifelong costs. We simply can't realize the full potential of our lives, our work, our relationships by persistently existing within these many boxes. Technology has brought with it heightened anonymity, effectively pushing us, each of us, into smaller and smaller boxes. Who knows their neighbors? Who knows the name of the pharmacist? Who knows anybody next door? Similarly, we can't save our planet by treating it as a collection of boxes. Everything is connected. Everything relies on everything. When a species becomes extinct, it will impact us. When there are droughts halfway around the world, it will impact us. When the next global pandemic strikes, we cannot respond the way we did with COVID. We responded in nationalistic boxes, even though the virus ignores and ignored all borders and boundaries. Box strategy against a global enemy will never work out well. Box thinking at a planetary level may in fact be the biggest existential threat there is. So what say we examine our lives, our work, our relationships, and our relationships with our only planet and ask ourselves this, am I operating in boxes? Do they serve me or them or us well? And if not, what can I do to break my boxes open? How can I replace their limitations with the wonder of the possible and the possibility of the wondrous? And most fundamentally, is it not time for me, is it not time for all of us to get out of the box? Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.